Well, it's so good to see y'all this morning. Welcome back to Community Church. So glad you're here on this Memorial Day weekend. And um, what a weekend of remembrance it truly is. Again, uh, we acknowledged the veterans and the families of veteran veterans earlier, but I just want to say here again, thank you very much, veterans, for your service. All of those families who have uh, supported veterans um, today and tomorrow, this weekend is not the easiest of days. And so while most of us get a long three-day weekend, I'm mindful of the young mothers uh, who are laying next to a gravestone this weekend with their small children. I'm mindful of the families who are remembering uh, the loss of a loved one. And I'm mindful of the freedom that I still have because of those people. And I'm so grateful for each and every one of them. And so veterans, thank you so much for your service. We are indebted to you. Uh, we're free today to worship here in this place because of you. And so all of those struggling families, uh, whether your problems are big, whether they're small, maybe it's uh, been a while since you've lost your loved one. Maybe it's not been that long at all. But I just want to comfort you this morning with the word of God and knowing that we can put our hope and trust in this book, in the very word of God, uh, that the promises we read in this book are true. Uh, they give us hope, eternal hope, that no one can ever take away. And so just put your hope uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, today and every day. And that, that's true for all of us. And we're going to talk about faith like a child today. And uh, that, that's the kind of faith I think that our Lord requires of us. You know, one of my favorite bands early on in my faith, this goes back 100 years or so, was a band called Jars of Clay. I don't know if some of you guys remember them or not, but me and the boys used to play ping pong out in our garage. So we found an old ping pong table that somebody was giving away. It had been set outside, so it was also warped, which just added to the challenge of it all. And so we had this ping pong table in my garage, and we'd get out there and play ping pong all night long, listening to Jars of Clay's first record that came out in 95. It was actually a cassette that we had. And in fact, a couple of us were traveling around playing music at that time as well, and we played a couple of songs off of that record. Of course, their big hit was Flood. Uh, some of you might remember that. Most of you probably don't. You're not as old as I am, but that was their big hit. We played that song, but another song on that record we played was a song called Like a Child. And I want to read the last verse of that song to you. It says, they say that love can heal the broken. They say that hope can make you see. They say that faith can find a savior if you would follow and believe with faith like a child. And so that's exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about faith like a child. Last week, Christ taught us to pray always. He told us to not lose heart in his parable of the persistent widow. You'll remember from the first eight verses of Luke 18. And so this week, as we continue in that study in Luke 18, we're going to begin in verse 9 and carry it down through verse 17. And he's going to give us another example of prayer here in his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So Luke 19, or Luke 18, rather, excuse me, verses 9 through 17. But in the previous parable we got earlier in this chapter, we looked at the practice of prayer. Okay, we've seen the benefit of constant communication with God through maintaining an attitude of prayer. But in our parable today, we're going to actually see the heart behind the prayer. Now, personally, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture in all of the Bible that we're going to be talking about today. I think about it a lot. I come back to it often in my mind, uh, no doubt about that, because every time I do, it corrects my attitude and it helps me to refocus my own heart. It recalibrates my moral compass, if you will, and it truly exposes my own self-righteousness. It really shows me who I am. I'm, I'm a person who is in desperate need of the mercy of God, and I need to be reminded of that. And this, this passage of Scripture does a great job of that. It reminds me that my God is merciful to a sinner like me. It reminds me that I need that mercy. And so when I start to lose my perspective or whatever, this is where I come. I come back to this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, because in it, we see a true and real sinner's prayer. It's raw. This prayer that we're going to look at is so unpolished and unrehearsed, but yet it's still so authentic. It's beautiful. 
And that's probably why I love this passage of Scripture so much. Now, if you grew up in the church, you're probably familiar with the terminology sinner's prayer. You've most likely heard it. You might have prayed it. You've heard somebody talk about it. But if I'm honest, I've always kind of struggled with that idea of a, quote, sinner's prayer. Because at least the one we were taught in church early on in my faith, I couldn't really find anywhere in Scripture, at least not in the way that it was presented, okay? But now if you didn't grow up in church, then you might be wondering what in the world I'm talking about. So let me explain. The sinner's prayer was basically a predetermined set of words that was given to someone to repeat if they wanted to give their heart to Christ or if they wanted to be saved, for example. Now, don't get me wrong here. Those words were very biblical. There's no doubt about that. I have no doubt that those words were prescribed with very, very good intentions. I mean, they basically just explained the gospel. They asked the sinner to confess their sins, to believe the gospel, right? So all of that is a very, very good thing. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Let me give you one example of a sinner's prayer that, that we would have heard back then. It goes like this. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I need and want your forgiveness. I accept your death as the penalty for my sin and recognize that your mercy and grace is a gift you offer to me because of your great love, not based on anything I've done. Amen. Cleanse me and make me your child. By faith, I receive you into my heart as the son of God and as savior and Lord of my life. From now on, help me to live for you with you in control in your precious name. Amen. You know, there's nothing unbiblical about that prayer. And so what in the world is my problem with it, right? Well, the problem is not with the prayer. It's with the approach that creates a process. That's where I tend to have a problem. By prescribing a predetermined set of words to people to pray or just merely repeat, we run the risk of becoming very formulaic and very academic in our process of leading somebody to Christ, right? We would count them saved if they just would repeat this prayer after me. Then, okay, good, they're saved, and now we're soul winning, right? And of course, one who wins souls is wise. That's what the Bible says in Proverbs 11.30. I mean, we're just being good evangelists at that point. But I think the issue that I take with it is maybe we've never considered the first part of that verse. Let me read to you what Proverbs 11.30 says in its entirety. It says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. You see, we were good at sowing the seed, so to speak, but we weren't very good at taking care of the tree, if you know what I mean. So what I'm saying is we wanted to be good evangelists, and I think we did a good job of that, but maybe we didn't always do a great job of making disciples of teaching people all that they had observed Christ do. That's what he said in the Great Commission, right? Teaching them all the things that you've observed. Maybe we didn't do a great job of teaching them the things of Christ. In other words, where was the fruit in the life of all of these people who simply repeated a prayer? We've got to be careful. And so can I tell you this morning that eternal salvation never, ever is given to someone who simply repeats a prayer. We need to understand that. Salvation is a gift of God. It's given by God, by His grace, through faith. That's Ephesians 2.8. Now, of course, do you need to believe the gospel? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you need to repent of your sins? Yes, you do, absolutely. But the truth is that does not have to be done through a certain predetermined set of words and phrases called a sinner's prayer. And that's why I love this passage so much this morning that we're going to be in. Because in this passage, we, we see a sinner who goes home justified by God. He's saved, right? Simply because he humbled himself before God. Simply because he repented and begged God for his mercy. And the word of God says he went home justified. And again, in my opinion, it's one of the most beautiful prayers, one of the most beautiful passages of scripture that we have in all of the Bible, because it wasn't about the words that this man prayed that brought him to salvation. It was the attitude of his heart toward God in response to the reality of who he was 
in light of who God is. You see what I'm saying? Just like I mentioned last week, prayer is not a magic wand that we wave toward heaven. Not at all. Therefore, there are no magic words that we can pray that will grant us salvation. Okay? That's not how that works. What that is is a religious practice. That's all that is. It's not a personal relationship. And Christ is calling us into a real personal and authentic relationship with himself that no religious practice could ever accomplish, ever. And so in our passage today, Christ is going to actually show us what can accomplish a relationship with him. So would you pray with me and we'll get into our text. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. Thank you for this beautiful passage of scripture that shows us the heart of someone who is humbly coming to you for salvation. Thank you for preserving this prayer for us in your word so that we can have a model of what a real sinner's prayer looks like. Help us, Lord, to understand what you teach us today. Through your spirit, guide us into all truth. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, Luke writes, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, verse 13, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says in verse 14, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 15, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. All right. So the first part of our text this morning, namely verses 9 through 14, it's what we call the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This parable is unique to the gospel of Luke. However, when we get down into verses 15 through 17, we can also find that teaching over in Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, and also in the gospel of Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. So start there for your comparison study on what Christ is teaching about the little children here today. But we begin our study this morning in verse 9. With Luke saying, also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, notice right away who the audience is here. The word says that he spoke to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's the audience. So Christ is addressing those people who had already misplaced their trust. They had already overestimated their own righteousness. In fact, they believed that they were somehow righteous in and of themselves. And of course, when we think like that, that will lead to an inflated view of ourselves. It, it results in pride, right? Which, of course, leads to a low view of other people. It lifts us up and puts others down. It causes us to spite them. Do you remember from our passage last week, what was the character of the unjust judge in that passage? In verse 2, the word says that he did not regard, or he had no regard, rather no fear for God or regard for man. So he didn't care for God, he didn't care for other people. And of course, as we mentioned, that, that Jesus taught us that we need to love God and love others. That's Matthew 22, 37 through 40. He said, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. And so what we see here is that self-righteousness actually removes our fear of God. That's one of the things it does. And it also removes our respect or love for other people. It causes us to despise each other. So when we hate God, naturally we despise one another, those who are created in his image. 
What does the Bible say about righteousness? Christ is talking to those who are self-righteous. And of course, the scripture has a lot to say about that. In regard to the righteousness of man, it tells us that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Congratulations. <laughs> That's what our righteousness is like in Isaiah 64, verse 6. Not much to brag about there. But in Psalm chapter 11, verse 7, it tells us who is righteous. It says, the Lord is righteous. In fact, righteousness and justice are the very foundation of his throne, according to Psalm 89, verse 14. And so if any of us should ever become righteous, then that would mean it would have to come from God to us. It would not be something that I could conjure up on my own. Uh, in other words, his righteousness would have to be credited to me. It would have to be imputed. Just as Abraham believed in the Lord and he accounted it, the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness in Genesis 15, 6. In other words, God accounted Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. That's how this works. This is how it's imputed or credited. That's Romans 4.13. Paul also said in Romans 18, or I'm sorry, 8.10, Romans 8.10, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So we see how this works. It's Christ in us that makes us righteousness or righteous. That's by grace through faith is how we get righteousness from God. He makes us righteous. There's nothing in me that is right until Christ comes in and makes me right. So I can't trust in myself that I'm righteous because of course I'm not. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So Jewish tradition would tell us that uh, we are to pray three times a day, morning, noon, and night. And here we see two different types of people coming to pray in one place, namely the temple. More importantly, what we're going to see here is two very different types of prayer once they get to the temple. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, <coughs> pardon me, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Man, I love what G. Campbell Morgan said here. He said, can you find anything in literature to surpass that for satire? <laughs> what a great word. This right here was a self-righteous prayer if there ever was one. The Pharisees' prayers, notice, were with himself, not God. He wasn't praying to God. He was basically just talking to himself. Well, he might have started his prayer off with the word God, but then notice he quickly filled the air with I, 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 I. Five times he mentions himself in this short little prayer. But you know, prideful people can always find an audience with themselves, for sure. The word does not say that he prayed within himself. This was not a silent prayer to God. All this was was one big pep rally to himself, as one giant attaboy from himself to himself. He prayed with himself. But in truth, this man was guilty of everything that he claimed not to be. An extortioner, that's the first thing he said he wasn't. An extortioner is one who will obtain excessive prices by taking advantage of people, right? That's extortion. When Christ cleansed the temple, we haven't made it there yet. We will in chapter 19. But he drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple. And here's what he told them. He said, it's written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves, right? So money can't gain us access to God. What that's called is extortion. The Pharisee also claimed to be just. But in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 5, it tells us that the unjust knows no shame. I mean, how shameful would it be to stand in the temple right before God and proclaim your own righteousness and justice? <laughs> this man was very unjust. He also claimed to not be an adulterer, which I find quite hilarious personally, 
considering the fact that he was currently worshiping himself in the presence of God. If that's not spiritual adultery, I don't know what is. And then he obviously looked around the room while he was praying with himself. He took time to open his eyes and look around the room to be sure that, you know, everybody was noticing how righteous he was. And he happened to see the tax collector. Now, a tax collector would have been someone who had gotten wealthy by taking other people's money. That was kind of their job. But this man here, the Pharisee, rejoiced to himself that, well, you know what? At least I'm not like that guy over there. At least I'm not him. Well, of course, either him or those like him were getting very wealthy, stealing money in the temple. This Pharisee was a complete and total hypocrite, guilty of everything he claimed not to be. And he knew it, right? He knew what he was doing. He loved himself. Guys, notice the posture as he prayed. He stood in the presence of God. Abram fell on his face in Genesis 17.3 when God appeared to him. Joshua fell on his face when the commander of the Lord's armies came to him in Joshua 5.14. But this Pharisee thought it was okay to go ahead and stand in the presence of God and look around. God did not have this man's attention. Okay? This man, like the unjust judge, had no fear of God and no regard for man. He only concerned himself with himself. Notice where his eyes are. Again, they're looking around, but where were the tax collector's eyes here? Looking down. That's because pride always seeks the approval of others. Certainly when we pray, we want to make sure everybody's amen in that. But humility, it only seeks the approval of God. That's it. So here's an important thing for us to learn as believers, as followers of Christ. Let's make absolutely sure that when we pray, we are only addressing God, right? I've heard this so many times. I can't tell you how many times. Too many times Christians try to address other people in the room when they pray. Don't do that. Don't do that. Your audience is with God. God wants your attention. We don't need to teach people lessons in the process of praying. We don't need to say things to try to grab their attention. We need to keep our prayers vertical, not horizontal. We've got to be very careful here. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So in a short prayer of only 33 words, this Pharisee uses five personal pronouns. And he gives credence to his works of the flesh as examples of his own self-righteousness. He even claims these possessions here as his own, right? But had he really been a man of God, truthfully a man of God, then he would have been very familiar with scriptures that say things like this that would completely contradict his claim. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth and all that is in it. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. So the only thing that this Pharisee truly possessed was his pride. That's it. Guys, external acts of religion do not equate to internal repentance at all. These Jews were only required to fast on the Day of Atonement. That's Leviticus 16.29. But self-righteous tradition here led this guy to fast two times a week so he could tell everybody about it. I mean, obviously, there's nothing wrong with praying more. There's nothing wrong with fasting more. Of course, there's not anything wrong with that. But so long as our motive is pure. That's the whole point here. Okay, Those who rely on religion tend to take pride in their possessions. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Those are the tiniest herbs in your garden. You guys tithe all that, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, Jesus said, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done, but not leaving out the others. 
So you see the point he's making there in Matthew 23, 23. Jesus is going to teach us about the weightier matters. He's going to teach us about all three of these things, justice, mercy, and faith in our passage this morning, verse 13. And the tax collector standing afar off. So you see humility. Yes, he was still standing, but he was not close. He was far. He would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Hmm. Now, again, tax collectors were wealthy people, generally. They got rich off of other people's money. But as we can see, his money could not gain him access to God. He stood afar off. Again, we see a picture of humility here. In other words, this tax collector's pockets might have been very full, but his heart currently was very empty. He knew that he didn't deserve to get close to the presence of God. He didn't get anywhere near the mercy seat of God, which sat in the middle of the temple. I mean, he knew that there was no way that he could personally get to God's mercy. And so therefore, in faith, he prayed for God's mercy to come to him. I love that. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Literally, it reads, God, propitiate my sins. That word right there is just a 10 cent word that means atonement. Satisfy my sin. Atone for my sin. He realized his condition before God. So that word propitiate, it's like we see in Hebrews 2.17 and in 1 John and other places. So it's very critical to what he's actually saying here. If you were to read this verse literally, it also says, God, have mercy on me or God, propitiate me, the sinner, not a sinner. He's not just a sinner, right? He's saying this as if he were the only one there with sin. That's what makes this prayer so beautiful. The Pharisee looked around at the tax collector, but the tax collector is saying, I'm the guy. I'm the one with the sin. I'm right here. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. He wasn't comparing himself to other people. He actually acknowledged his own sin before God. He owned his guilt before God. Guys, none of us are getting to heaven based on how we compare to other people. That's not the case at all. Remember when David offered up his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. Of course, this was based on the sin he committed with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. But if you read through Psalm 51, not one time will you see David apologize to Bathsheba or Uriah. What you will see is this in verse 4. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You see, Scripture teaches us that all sin is against God. All sin is against God. All of us have sinned against God. The Pharisee didn't understand that but the tax collector most certainly did. He understood that. And fittingly, we see him beating his breast, crying out to God. It's almost like this man understood he needed a new heart inside of him, right? Notice what's going on here. While the Pharisee placed all of his importance on being seen, the tax collector placed all of the importance on being known, being known. What matters is not that we're seen by men, but rather that we are known by God. Wearsby said, this is the prodigal son and the elder brother all over again. And it really is. We studied that. Because as we noticed in that parable of the prodigal son, of that story, that even though one was at home and the other far away, both of their hearts were out in the far country. Both of their hearts were far away from the father. So let's you and I be sure that our hearts are known by God rather than worrying about how many of our works can be seen by men. But here in this passage, we see three steps to salvation, and all of them are heart attitudes, you could say. <coughs> Again, not magic words. It's the attitude of their heart. In this passage, we see humility. The tax collector wouldn't even raise his eyes toward heaven. We see repentance. He beat his breast. Right, which is an outward show of inward sorrow. Whereas the Pharisee, he thought, you know, my fasting, my tithing, if I just let everybody know about that, that outward show would, would 
necessitate my inward repentance. And of course, that's never the case, ever. We also see confession in this passage. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We see humility. We see repentance. We see confession. All three signs of genuine salvation. Now, I want to read to you just some small little excerpts from the salvation testimonies of each of the three ladies that were baptized last week. And I want to see if you can hear a common thread as I read through these testimonies, okay? <clears throat> One of the ladies said, Finally, after fighting for years, I gave up. And I fell on my knees in my house and cried to God and begged him to forgive me and give me another chance to worship him. At that moment, I felt weight lifted off of my chest and my shoulders, and I was able to breathe for the very first time. Another lady said, I was sitting in church that day, and the verse spoke to me. God spoke to me, and he wanted me to listen. That's when he got a hold of me and called me out. He kept telling me, I need to go in front of the church and pray and ask for acceptance. I made that journey to the front of the church with uncontrollable crying. Spiritually, after that day, all that I felt is freedom and peace, like I can breathe again. I felt acceptance. Another lady said, God has given me a lot of challenges to overcome. But the latest one is when I gave up and I said, I need Jesus. She said, he saved me and pulled me out of that pit. She said, I started a relationship with Jesus because I felt like I would be better off with him than anyone else who ever wanted to put me down. And then she quotes from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, which says, Come to me. This is Jesus speaking. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. After seeking him and also crying to him, God showed me more in my life than I would have ever expected. He is my life, and he is who I want to be with forever because I never met somebody so life-changing at all. <laughs> Amen. Did you hear all of that? The common theme that's running through each and every one of those testimonies is the same one that runs through every salvation testimony. It's this, I gave up and God lifted me up. That's the essence of what you just heard. There was humility in those statements of testimony. There was repentance. There was confession in each one of those testimonies and all of them in one way or another in one way or another, express that, you know what, this world or the troubles of this world or even my own sin and the consequences of it have tried to put me down. But when I humbled myself before God, he lifted me up. That was their testimony. You see, it was not the exact words they prayed, was it? Like we see in that popular sinner's prayer. It was their broken and contrite and humble heart before God that resulted in their being saved. Just like we see here in the life of this tax collector. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, literally put down. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So folks, this verse right here, should put an absolute end to legalism completely. The tax collector was justified before a holy God immediately because he humbled himself and he repented of his sin and cried out to God for mercy. You see, when a sinner, a sinner gets humble before God, God will exalt him. But the opposite is also true. All right, this Pharisee tried to walk into the presence of God exalting himself. And what did God do? He put him down. That man was not justified. Ironside wrote, We cannot come to God on the ground of our own righteousness. We have no title to approach him in that way. Amen. No man has a right to plead his own goodness as the reason why God should hear his cry. What a quote. Because any goodness whatsoever that we perceive in ourselves, that's not reality. That's only self-righteousness. That's what that is. We're not qualified to even stand in the presence of God, much less to stand there and proclaim our own goodness before him, right? No, we can only come to God based on the work of Jesus Christ for us on our behalf. By his grace, 
through faith. That's how we come to God. That's how we are made righteous, right? It's never about what I've done. It's always about what Christ has done for me. Two men went to the temple to pray this day, but only one of them went home forgiven. That's the important thing to catch, right? Can we just be honest about our prayer life for a minute? If I bring any false piety or any pride with me into the throne room of God when I pray, I will deservingly be turned away and put down. I deserve that. If that's how I'm going to approach God. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. The Pharisee prayed with himself. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Amen. What did Luke say about Jesus at the very beginning of this chapter in verse 1? He said, then he, meaning Christ, spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. So here we're learning that persistent, humble prayer is actually evidence of faith that will sustain you in your walk with Christ. Remember, it's like that little boy who keeps knocking on the door and doesn't run away before the owner comes and answers the door. He stays, he's persistent, he knocks until the owner comes that's the kind of faith we're talking about here. But what we see here in our passage today is that this type of unpretentious or, or humble prayer is actually evidence of a faith that saves. And it's beautiful. I love the song we sing. That has a, This is the second verse, I think, in the song. It was a Big Daddy Weave song. We sing it a lot. But it says, Jesus, Master, Savior, Friend, Your mercy seems to have no end. And though all I have to bring is sin, I come to praise you. I think that pretty well says it right. Humility, repentance, confession, all of that bring a right perspective to our prayer life. Because the truth about these two men who went to the temple to pray that day is that one of these men went to the temple full of himself, but the other man went to the temple to empty himself out. Big difference. Matthew Henry said, this publican, which is the tax collector, the tax collector, his address to God was full of humility and of repentance for sin and desire toward God. His prayer was short, but to the purpose. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Blessed be God that we have this short prayer upon record as an answered prayer and that we are sure that he who prayed it went to his house justified for so shall we be if we pray it as he did through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The tax collector that day owned it. He owned his sin before God and he begged for atonement. He begged for mercy because he knew that was his only hope. That was it. That's the only hope he had to get something that he did not deserve. That's the very definition of mercy, by the way. To get something you don't deserve. And of course, that's our only hope too. Our hope is no different. Therefore, God tells us in his word, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's Proverbs chapter three, verse 34. And by the way, we see that repeated at least twice in the New Testament as well. So note the emphasis. But then Christ illustrates humility in his teaching with a group of little kids. And it's really, really fascinating. Verse 15. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. <laughs> so I don't, this is my opinion, but I think the disciples were still having trouble fully understanding a relationship with God. They didn't fully understand what that looked like, namely in the compassion department. <laughs> what does this really look like as far as being compassionate? Ah, don't trouble Jesus with the little things, man. He's obviously got more important things to do than touch your little baby. As cute as it is, just give him some room, right? They were trying to protect the Lord in their own way. But they did, I think, forget the words of Christ that they would have heard not too long ago from Luke 17 too, when Christ said, it'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Hmm. 
Jesus loves kids. He loves kids. He loves children. He loves the hearts of children. Remember what Christ taught us in the parable last week of the widow and the unjust judge. He taught us that the truth was in the contrast, right? So he taught us that he does not grow weary in our coming. The judge did, but God does not grow weary in our coming to him. He's not bothered by us. And by the way, if you have trusted in Christ by faith, then you're one of his little ones. You're one of his children. Isn't it funny, though, how it's always the other people out there that bother God? It's not, it's not usually us. But when other people come around, I mean, the disciples had no problem hanging around with Jesus themselves, taking up all his time and being in his space. But when other people came around, oh, that, that's bothersome. The Pharisees said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He even felt worthy to stand in the presence of God, like he had somehow earned it. The word said he stood, prayed with himself. But this tax collector was like the infants, like the little ones that we see here, who couldn't even raise their eyes toward heaven. That's humility. They may not have been able to lift their eyes toward heaven, but what they did have was childlike faith. Verse 16. But Jesus called them and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. In other words, the kingdom of God is populated with people who have faith like a child. How do they do that? What does this mean? Well, think about it. Children believe what we tell them, don't they? For the most part, children take us at our word. Notice Jesus called them. Jesus called these little children, and it's implicit within the text that they came. Remember what he said to Nicodemus in John 3. He told Nicodemus that you must be born again. That was pretty confusing at the time. In other words, what Christ was saying, Nicodemus, is you need to have faith like a child. You need to believe me like a child. And when I call you, Come to me. Believe what I tell you. Trust me. William MacDonald said, Little children do not need to become adults in order to be saved, but adults do need the simple faith and humility of a little child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Guys, we don't need academic formulas. What we need is childlike faith. That's what we need. And by the way, if you've ever wondered what happens to infants, what happens to children when they die, Jesus gives us our answer right here in verse 16. He says, for such is the kingdom of God. Right there's your answer. If you've ever had to suffer the loss of a child, if you've ever had to suffer that unimaginable pain of losing a child, whether by accident or abortion or whatever, I want you to know this morning, your child's in heaven. For such is the kingdom of God. That's what he said. So let that comfort you this morning, right? Let that be a comfort to your soul that your child is with Christ in his kingdom. And so if you humble yourself in repentance... If you humble yourself by confessing your sins and putting your faith in Christ like a child, then one day you can enjoy the comforts of heaven for all of eternity as well. Verse 17. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So Christ is teaching us two things in particular here about the kingdom of God. The first one is it must be received. The kingdom of God is to be received. And the way that it's to be received is through childlike faith, okay? Now, a bit of theology here. Don't get confused um, with sanctification. We're talking about justification here. We've talked about this before. The three aspects of our salvation are justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification means we're saved, we're born again, we're made right. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us by grace through faith. We're saved. 
We're justified before a holy God. Me, the sinner, am justified. That's step one. Step two in the process is sanctification. That's the process by where the Holy Spirit conforms us into the likeness of Christ over the period of time, our life. And then the last one is, of course, glorification. The moment we take our last breath in this life, open our eyes in glory, and we are glorified. So those are the three aspects of salvation. We're talking about justification here. If you get tripped up and start thinking about sanctification, what you're going to end up going down is the road to legalism. And we have to avoid that. Legalism gives us things like pride, but it can never give us purity. It gave that Pharisee pride, but it did not make him pure. Right? Legalism puffs us up before men, but it can never give us mercy, ever. It might give us status in the community, but it will never, ever give us salvation. Jesus did not say, do all the things and then enter into my kingdom. That's not what he said. He's teaching us to receive the kingdom of God just like a kid, just like a child, by faith. Believe him. Believe what he says. Just like the persistent widow last week, God will sustain you, believer. God will sustain you, so don't lose heart. But it's only through faith like one of these little kids. It's only through faith like a child that he will save your soul and give you a new heart like he did the tax collector. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a self-righteous man who was absolutely full of himself, but the other man was repentant and fully aware of himself. See the difference? He was aware of who he was before God. One man was proud. The other man was humble. But one went home the way he came, which was basking in the glory of his own self-righteousness. But the other man, the humble man, he went home justified before God. Guys, all I've got to bring, the only thing I have to bring to my Savior is my sin. That's it. You remember the the hymn, Rock of Ages. It was written in 1776. And it says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Amen. That sums it up well. Guys, what we see here in this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is the very essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the very essence of the gospel. It's exactly what Christ conveyed to his kids, his children, his disciples on the mountain, back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See the difference? It's the attitude of our heart toward God. It's not some predetermined, repeated prayer. That's never saved even one person. But every single person who has come to Christ by grace through faith, like a child, has went home justified before God for all of eternity. Amen. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply, simply to the cross I cling. Thank you, Lord. You are good, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this word that really just helps us clarify the essence of the gospel, the essence of what it means to come to Christ for mercy, for salvation, and really how pathetic we look when we get prideful and self-righteous. Lord, I pray for my own heart this morning, just like I pray for every heart that is hearing this message, that we would rid ourselves of selfish pride, that we would humble ourselves in repentance and confession and beg for the mercy of God. The very thing a sinner like me does not deserve is your mercy. But you give it to everyone who will come to you in faith like one of these little ones, believing what you say exactly the way you said it. Thank you, Lord, that you give us all the same opportunity. If we want mercy, we can have it. If we want grace, we can have it. If we want forgiveness, we can have it. We just got to come. We've just got to turn away from our sin and believe. I pray that if anyone who hears the message today, maybe they haven't turned from their sin. Maybe they haven't 
simply begged for the mercy of God in their life. I pray they would do that this morning, that they might go home justified. I pray for the rest of us as believers. Maybe we've seen some self-righteousness creep up. Maybe we've started to claim a few of our possessions. Maybe we think we own a few things. Maybe we think we're um, pretty good Christians because we fast or we pray or we just do the thing. None of that equals salvation. None of that equals acceptance and righteousness before a holy God. Only the work of Jesus can accomplish that. So I pray that we would turn away from our own self-righteousness and again trust completely in the work of Christ on our behalf through your cross for our salvation. And that we could come back to this passage often, every time we get off the rails, every time we feel pride creeping up in our heart, that we would come back to this passage and realize it's not about that. It's about humble faith before you. Staying humble. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be a body of believers, a family of faith, that will walk with you in complete humility, understanding that the grace we have is certainly not grace we deserve, but it's grace that's freely offered to anyone who is willing to receive it with faith like a child. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you for the promises we have in your word. We stand on them. We have no hope in this world. We have no hope in our own strength and our own power, but we have eternal hope in you. So do with us however you see fit. Speak to our hearts. Call us out. Convict us. Correct us. Maybe bring comfort. Whatever it is we need, Lord, you can provide that. And we ask for that now. In Jesus' name, amen.